Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 20th, 2017. Now, today and tomorrow, and Monday and Tuesday, (laughs) we will be playing audio from the recently concluded Pirate Christian Radio Conference in Sydney, Australia. Unfortunately, my travel schedule requires me to be in a couple of places over the next few days, so I wanted to have new episodes, and this is the way we're going to do it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying in small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Weird how that works, isn't it? Over again, we demonstrate that what's being taught is far, far, far from biblical. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to play the next lecture by Pastor Joel Klein. Uh, He gave two lectures at the Pirate Christian Radio Conference, one giving a history of the, uh, the Reformation and, you know, kind of ongoing impact. And his second lecture is, uh, is, how do they say it in Australia? It's a ripper. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, Pastor Klein will be, uh, discussing uh, the topic of you know kind of the Reformation moving forward post World War II and uh, the idea of abandoning the Reformation during you know the era after World War II and uh, it will address some of the current modern day problems uh, in the churches today, including the the Church of Australia. So fascinating lecture. Let's get to it. There will be no commercial interruptions uh, for the next few days. Uh, just my travel schedule doesn't permit me to do all the production work necessary to get all of that in there. So let's get to it. Here's today's episode of Fighting for the Faith with no commercial interruptions. Here we go. God in true righteousness and holiness. This is who we are to be, the recreation in the image of God, the restoration of the image of God, which was lost in the fall, or at least darkened and hidden by the fall of man, now restored by the alien righteousness of Christ given to us through the waters of our baptisms. This is what we are to reflect and who we are to be in our homes, in the church and in society. So the origin of the sickness begins 
post-war, in modernity most especially. The reason of man is lifted well above all ideals. It's lifted above the spirituality that we are given through the Holy Word of God. Reasoning is elevated to the point where if it is not able to be seen with the eyes and touched with the hands, then it is of no relevance, which is a wonderful sacramental theology when you think about it, because you touch and taste and see that the Lord is good. But it's very clear that post-World War II most especially, even beginning post-World War I, our society began to change very, very quickly. We see it in architecture and we see it in art and we have seen it in the church. World War II and uh, World War I preceding it was viewed as the destructive forces of the old world. When the men came back from war bloodied and broken with limbs missing, when mothers mourned the loss of their husbands and children, when children grew up fatherless as my mother lost her father and my grandmother, uh, in her 50s, though he came back from the war, he died quickly. This is seen as evidence that the old way of doing things, the old structures of Europe, the way that we used to think is not relevant to us and only causes destruction. We see that in architecture very quickly, as, especially uh, when you consider the facades al- along the main stretch in Perth and in my hometown in Geraldton. The old buildings were torn down. They weren't functional. They looked good, sure, but they weren't functional. They were old and they're creaky. They didn't fulfill the purpose that we wanted them to be uh, built for. We could build new ones and get rid of the old and restructure and streamline and make everything work so that we could quickly gain what we want and shore up our place on the face of the earth. This led to cold structures, cold tilt-up buildings, quick-form cement, walls going up in two hours flat, hard on the edges, cold in the front and not and devoid of the beauty of the old way of doing architecture, the old structures with the flow and the beauty and the filigrees and the, uh, the accents that went into the front, into the doorways and into the carvings that tradesmen and true craftsmen used to put into the creation of places to live and work. This was torn apart as World War II came to an end because it wasn't necessary. Beauty was removed and function took its place. This happened very quickly in the church too. We call divine worship the divine drama. It's where we gather with the saints of all time, with the heavenly hosts. God comes and is with his people. The heavenly Jerusalem descends upon earth and where we gather in the name of God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, there in the beauty and the structure of God's word, in the singing of the hymns and the joining of the saints to receive the gift of the holy sacraments, there in the beauty of the divine drama, in the liturgy, with all of its filigrees, with all of its highs and lows, there in that drama, we gathered to hear God present with us. But this was seen as old world. This was seen as old hat, not functional, not relevant, unnecessary beauty, unnecessary filigrees. This was not fulfilling 
to those coming out of World War II. This was more evidence of the old world domineering. We lost the beauty there contained. You see, this developed particularly in the 20th century, even then as humanity began to say, well, God's word then is not functional. Belief in Christ because he spoke is not functional. So we see things like evolutionary theory becoming rooted in education from the 1960s. As people said, well, the God of the old world caused war. And how many times have you heard that? All wars are about religion. Garbage. Absolute garbage. All wars are about land and natural resources. That's what all wars are about. Truth is lost when humanity turns to its own reasoning and it turns to the gods of its own making. And so evolutionary theory settled in the minds of humanity leads to an understanding that we are just products of chance. That we, in fact, if we have no function, are dispensable. That beauty is not necessary. That the fabric that makes up the whole of our society and our families and the church If you're not playing in the praise band, you're not doing a holy work. It's no different to being cloistered as a monk. If you're not speaking in tongues, well, you're probably not a holy person. If you're just singing the hymns, sitting down and standing up and coming to receive Christ's body and blood, well, then you're not really participating in the life of God. It's simply not functional. It serves no purpose. No, the church must be changed to match this kind of evolutionary thinking, that the dominant, the praiseworthy, the ones who heard the great words of prophecy over them, and if you've ever been in uh, these charismatic groups and seen people prophesied over, you'll notice that it's the same people. (laughs) In the small town I grew up in, every time we'd go to an ecumenical function, all the pretty people from the Christian school I went to all got prophecies and you decide that you want to be a pretty person because God only speaks to pretty people. Isn't that stupid? (laughs) But this is where we became rooted, that those that were going to be functional, those that were streamlined, those that could do something for us were the ones that we'd keep. And seated deep in the backs of our collective minds then is the idea that if I am not participating if I'm not functioning, if I'm hurt and broken, if I'm born in sin, dead in my trespasses, if I'm not holy, then I'm of no value, no value to the church. If I'm not functioning in society, if I'm not doing a great work and building the next great cathedral of tilt-up concrete, blackened windows, cold function, then I'm of no value. If I'm not participating, then I'm dispensable. This is in the back of all of our minds. And this is why, and we'll see later, what happens in our society happens. Coincidentally, at this time begins the sexual revolution. Narcissism becomes normalized because it is all about you, you know. It's all about getting to the top. Crawling, scrapping, grappling your way to the top of the pile and crowing as loud as you can. One of my professors had a German turn of phrase, and I forget it now, but it ends up with a rooster stands on a pile of its own feces and crows. And this is 
the picture of Western society, each one grappling and making his way to the top of the ladder as best he can. That's the fight of it. The despair, of course, is, if I'm not able to climb, then just bury me now. As this narcissism becomes normalized in the move into post-modernity, we notice that all of this causes a loss of identity. Now, you don't uh, have to watch very much television to know that every other ad break, there is an ad for Ancestry.com or some other genealogical study tool. People have become very interested in knowing where they come from, who their great-grandparents were, what part of Europe or Asia or, uh, or North America or wherever. People want to know what their history is and where they come from. This deep yearning comes from the fact that we as a society and as a church, mind you, and as families, through the move from, post, from modernity, uh, post-World War II, we've lost our identity. We don't know where we fit. We don't know where we connect. Every week the praise song is different. We're always doing a new thing, something more functional, being relevant to what's going on today at our very moment. We're chasing our tails constantly, constantly trying to be in the moment and we don't know who we are. We don't know where we've come from. We don't know then where we're going. Because not knowing who we are means that we don't know who we should be for the future. We don't know who we should be for our children. We don't know who we should be for the state, how we should serve our neighbour, because we don't even know who we are. And we don't know who our neighbour is. We have no sense of our identity. It has been completely obliterated. Now you'll see this statistic. This is a statistic that is used to measure narcissism. You see uh, 15.5 is... Uh, was the average uh, score of narcissism from 1980 to 1984, 85 to 89. This is still uh, late modernity, early postmodernism, and uh, the people born in this period, 80 to 84, 85 to 89, are considered millennials. You'll see then that there was not a sense of narcissism. There was a lingering ability to still love and serve your neighbour. But as we moved into 1990 to 94, 95 to 99, 2004, now into 2005, 2006, and that trend has not backed off. The average person in Western society, in our Western culture, is a clinical narcissist, clinically narcissistic, completely self-involved, given over to what their own ideals are, given over to what their perceived needs are. Have you heard that? The way to grow a church is to attend to people's perceived needs. Yes, their perceived needs is not their real need, is it? Their perceived need, actually, is self-idolatry. That's what narcissism is. I am my own little God. And this is what happens when we strip identity away from people. True identity. True identity is, I am a sinner in need of a saviour. I am the bottom of the pile, no matter how well I think I'm able to climb it. And there is only one who stands on the mountain. and He is the one who ascended after he died and rose again. 
Our identity can only be founded in him and it can only be established in him when we know who we are without him, when we know that we are all sinners in need of a saviour. But our society has built a picture that we are in fact saviours in need of a context, in need of a group to save. And when we are unable to be our own messiahs, then the despair sinks in most clearly. So you see that's uh, college students from 31 campuses across the US. That's the context of that statistic. Uh, And uh, that comes from the the narcissist epidemic, a good book, well worth reading. These statistics are anecdotally evident in Australia as well. This is not limited to North American campuses. This is a Western endemic problem. So in the home then, we see the fight very clearly in family and domestic violence. Having stripped away the identity of who we are as male and female, as husband and wife, the establishment of God's intent for marriage, who we should be as two flesh become one, how we should love our wives as Christ loved the church and submit to our husbands, doing this good work of vocation in the home, the fight ends up with domestic violence. This is a natural and expected outcome. We tell people from the day they're born, you must fight to be on top. You must be king wherever you walk. You must make your will known to those around you and you must impose it with impunity. This can only lead to violence, hatred and destruction. I'll have some statistics. How am I going, Pastor? Going long? Uh, People aged 20 20 to 34 years old comprised 49% of all victims in the Northern Territory. See, that's the millennials. These are the people now coming out, those who have had their identity stripped away by the boomers post-World War II. 46% of all victims in Western Australia, 20 to 34 years of age. 44% of all victims in South Australia. This is... This is a 14-year age bracket, 20 to 34. And this is not the majority of our society. The majority of our society is older than 34. And yet the vast majority of our violence in our homes is aged 20 to 34. Evidence of the loss of identity, knowing who we should be in our homes. 44% in the ACT, where all the politicians are. (laughs) I mean, the vast majority of the Australian Capital Territory, public servants and politicians, that's the industry of the area. And yet, the violent statistics are their children. 39% of all victims in New South Wales. You win, New South Wales. A dubious victory. The despair then. Consider this statistic of divorce. In 1993, so this is from 2000, uh, census in 2012. In 1993, the average length of marriage that ended up in divorce is 10.7 years. And then in 2012, it's 12.1 years. And you think that's fantastic, isn't it? What a wonderful change. People are now staying married longer. But that's actually a damning statistic. It's far worse. That means that even after 12.1 years, people are willing to throw their marriages away. 
I'll stay married for 20 years and then say, no, I want it my way. I want to be king. And if you're not doing what I want, then get out. Let's not uh, paper it over completely. There are instances of divorce that are necessary. And uh, we heard very clearly yesterday that uh, domestic violence and uh, yeah, criminal behaviour and uh, other behaviours certainly lead to divorce legitimately. But the vast majority of our divorces in our country are not because of genuine causes. They're in fact because of narcissism, the desire to have our perceived needs fulfilled. So from 10.7 years where it just wasn't working, now 12.1 years and extending longer and longer, people further on in life are more willing just to throw it all away to make sure their needs are fulfilled. So the despair continues into suicide. Look at the suicide rates rising. 2004 to 2013, male suicide went from under, 21, under 2,200 deaths to just under 2,600 per year. That's unbelievable. We as a society have perpetuated murder. We have told our children that if your life is not valuable, then it doesn't matter and it might as well end because you're going to nothing, you are nothing, and there is nothing past this life, so just die and go away, please. We might not say it quite so clearly, but this is the message we've been telling our kids since the um, evolutionary theory came into schools, most especially, but since World War II ended, thinking that we're building a new and glorious society, we're actually atten- we've actually caused more death than both of those wars, one, one and two, combined, caused in Europe. This, of course, is uh, statistically relevant for, divorce, uh, for um, abortion rates as well, for the very same reasons, that if this life of a child within the womb is of no value and hampers me receiving or doing or achieving what I want to receive, do or achieve in this life, then that life is expendable and we might as well just snuff it out. Here are um, causes of death and the statistics again are um, overwhelming. Between the ages 15 to 64, people taking their lives, but you'll see that age group 35 to 44, these are the children of the boomers, those uh, early postmoderns who have no hope, who have no identity because it was stripped away from them. Let's get past the home, into the state. The fight, of course, Woodstock 1, 1969, the sexual revolution. I'm going to skip through this very quickly. 1969, Woodstock, right? If you've ever seen videos of it, you're not allowed to watch it in front of your children. It's disgraceful. People would just take their clothes off in, uh, all through the, the, the concerts that were going on. They would go from tent to tent and uh, join themselves to one another in whatever fashion they thought they would be able to get away with. They would be taking drugs and carrying on and doing what felt good at the time, fulfilling their perceived needs right there and immediately. It seemed, though, and our society will tell you that it's innocuous. Well, they're not hurting anybody else, are they? They're not hurting you, so just let them do what they want. But the evidence becomes clearer as we head out of Woodstock to the despair of the second Woodstock in 1994. 
with the first Woodstock in 1969, said all of those rules of mum and dad and grandma and grandpa, all those rules of the church that says you should be married before you have sex, that you should hold sacred the bond between man and woman, all of those rules and stipulations of the old world, we'll just throw them away, we'll do whatever we like, and we stripped away then the identity of the very core of humanity And by 1994 at Woodstock 2, trying to replicate the love and the joy and the peace and the free love of Woodstock 1, what happened? Murder. Murder happened. Angry postmoderns who had had their identity stripped away, destroyed the stages, burned down the public toilets, strew mess all over the place. Bikey gangs were hired to bring peace and stability because the constabulary couldn't do it. Women were raped and men were bashed and murdered. That's what happened at Woodstock too. They're not hurting anybody. Let them do what they like. Fulfilling their perceived needs and the perceived needs of a postmodern with no identity is to fight to destroy in their anger at not knowing who they are. Abortion rates, then, this same despair leading to this violence against the unborn. Suicide in the same vein. It's because it's all about you. Can we have, do we have volume? We're we're heading into the church now. Pastor Rosebro sang this yesterday, so you all sing along. (laughs) we laugh because it's true (laughs) this all culminates when we consider the church the church has been perhaps the most affected and has become the most voiceless we live in a post-Christian world some say I'd say we've always lived in an anti-Christian world And it's become most clear as we consider even what is going on 
in our churches. As the fight begins, it's all about me. It's all about me. So we compete. We have an understanding that if your congregation is not growing, then your pastor's rubbish. If your church is failing, it's because it's not relevant. I hear people say, oh, I'm a part of the greatest, biggest Protestant church in the world. And I say, I'm not. It's nothing to do with the Lutheran World Federation. Thank you very much. And 90% of the churches teach that homosexuality is not a sin anymore where abortion is actually considered as a valid way of engaging with world poverty, where God's word is put to the side and sensuality becomes the centre of the teaching. I'm not a part of the greatest, largest group of Protestant Christians in the world. I am a confessional pastor. I subscribe to a solid confession of faith and I believe God's word to be true I'm not a Lutheran because there's lots of other Lutherans. I'm a Lutheran because we preach the truth. And I'll let you determine how you might define those who don't. This then leads to our question. What happened? What happened to the church? What about the 1950s? Wasn't it brilliant? People were still going to church. Mum and dad and all the kids and the nice white socks and the pretty frocks and the the little ties and the the suspenders and we're off in the old E.H. Holden, we're going to church. Everybody went to church, didn't they? That was what we did as a society. We were a Christian nation, weren't we? What happened? What happened? The dark underbelly became clear. Even while we were going to church, the scene was changing. We were saying that we weren't going to church to hear God's word, to bow before him in supplication, to confess our sins and receive absolution. No, if we were going to church and if we were going to believe in a God, if we were going to have a truth, then it was going to be a truth that made me powerful, that it fulfilled what I needed, that it did what I wanted It was functional and it went for an hour and finished on the dot and pastor started the service at nine on the dot in the second point. It was functional. I need to get home for lunch. I need to get home to watch the football because the bounce is at 12 o'clock. Church fulfills my need and if it gets in the way of my needs and my desires, then church be blind. We taught this to our children. No longer was the divine drama the centre of our Sunday. No longer was the word of God the life-giving elixir for all of our actual needs. Now the church was to serve us, to serve what we wanted rather than to serve what we need. As we told our children this, as we built up an expectation that church ought to make us happy ought to make us powerful and ought to make us glad to be alive. When this failed, the millennials said, it's garbage. These tilt-up buildings with their shining lights and smoke machines, it's garbage. And mark my words, these grand evangelical temples to self-indulgence, 
do not fill their doors and their walls and their seats with the bums of unbelievers come to faith in Christ. They do not. They fill their seats with the disgruntled of other denominations. They're full of ex-Anglicans, ex-Lutherans, ex-Roman Catholics, mostly, mostly baby boomers and the last few remnants of their children still hanging around to put up with this garbage. It is not the shining dance show and spectacular, the rock of Stedford of Hillsong on a Sunday morning. That is the few. The many know it's garbage. And the many know that this garbage then, well, they think they know, is God. And so the reasoning of the millennials is, if this bulldust, if this smoke and mirrors, if this global advertising and franchising of the faith is what God is about, then I'm done with it. I am done with it. I'm buying plain white t-shirts from Kmart and you can stick your Nike in your exhaust pipe. That's what has happened to our millennials. They've had a gutful. Their radars are up. They are bombarded with advertising and they know a crocodile. They know the shining smile leads to a bite. And this is the great danger. This is why we must address it. This is why we must call Christ church to account. Not because they are in error and we need to fix the problems, but because there are a generation of children going to hell. Going to hell. Because of this garbage. It's not all about me. You search the scriptures hoping that they have the answers to eternal life, said our Lord, but it is they that bear witness to me. It is all about Christ. Here, Pope Houston. Mein Führer! Twice. Fox News and... um, Uh, Fox News and um, uh, the breakfast show, Sunrise, which I hate. (laughs) John John Koch, his name's Koch, Koch, David Koch, yeah, sorry, John Koch is a former principal of the seminary, (laughs) pardon me, he's a good man, (laughs) Uh, yes, look at this bloke. We are scratching people where they are itching. Yes, they are. (laughs) What does God say? The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own what? Desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You know what I want to hear? Your God. Your God. You're a little God. You can build your own kingdom. You can leave a legacy. You'll be known through the generations. Your name will be spoken in hushed and reverent tones. That's what my itching ears want to hear. 
The truth is, like you, I am a sinner. And it is by the grace of Christ, by faith alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, by these means, God has made me righteous in His sight. Not because of my own righteousness, but because of Christ. Here is a, uh, a quite a liberal um, critic and a Christian, uh, mind you, Rachel Held Evans. Here's the thing. Having been advertised to our whole lives, we millennials have highly sensitive, sensitive BS meters and we are not easily impressed with consumerism or performances. True. It really is. We're bombarded constantly, especially these millennials, the digital natives. You can't open a website, right? Go on car sales to look at cars and all down the side. It's everything I've looked at eBay for the last week because I'm a sinner. (laughs) It's all there right in front of me. Buy, 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 buy. Get it now. Make it yours. Build your house. Fill your nest. New rims, new tires, new stereo, new clothes. You know how hard it is to get a cotton clerical shirt? (laughs) Now, millennials know when they're being lied to. So in the church, then, the despair is clear. There's been a mass exodus. Our kids have left. They're not coming back. They're not coming back to a smoke and mirrors show. They're not coming back to a trendy fellow with nice skinny jeans. Although my young bloke likes skinny jeans, don't you, mate? This is not what's going to bring them back into church. They despair and they leave. They reject the faith once for all delivered to the saints, even as those church leaders who so boldly rejected did before them. That's our reality. So how do we reconcile now? How do we reconcile the home, the state and the church, the right fight, vocation? We live our vocations. If we truly desire to be husbands and wives and children and church workers, people who participate in the life of our society and do so out of a love for our Lord and a desire to serve our neighbour there in all of our vocations, There where the milkmaid is doing God's work, as Pastor Rosebro pointed out to us. There in our vocations we reconcile our homes when we live according to God's word, viewing all that we do in his name to be a holy work. Where we live according to the established order that God has given, not male and male, husband and husband, wife and wife, no, husband and wife, children, living and honouring their father and mother, father and mother honouring those whom God has given to be spiritual fathers, civil fathers, politicians and the like and pastors, there where we live according to the order that God has given us through his holy word, there our homes are reconciled. This is our vocation together, to live according to God's ordering of our homes. There is a right way to despair then. We despair in repentance, despairing of ourselves, despairing that in our vocations we fail, that I'm not a good father, I'm not a good husband, my wife is not a good wife or a good mother and my children are turds. 
often. <laughs> we despair of ourselves in repentance and a dependence on Christ alone, on faith alone, to establish us in His order. How do we reconcile the state? The right fight. We live in a democracy. When one of our front benches gets up and says, I think gay marriage is okay, and our former Prime Minister says it's not, we say, good on you. Good on you, mate. You are doing what I employed you to do. You are doing what I voted you in to do. This is our solemn responsibility to call our government to account and make sure that it establishes good order in society under Christ who is the head of all things. They were given authority by Christ and we as Christ's children have a right fight on our hands to call our governments to account. It is our responsibility and our joy. Steadfastness in prayer and witness. We must be steadfast, and that is a deliberate use of that word. Not liberal, not loud, not constant, but steadfast in the truth. Our witness must be to the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. It must be according to the pattern of sound doctrine, and it must be in accord with all truth whom Jesus is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't give witness liberally, well, Jesus will make you happy, just give him a go. No, we steadfastly give witness when it hurts. We steadfastly pray when we don't want to. I don't want that old bloke back in church on Sunday. I don't want that family to come to Christ because they're going to annoy us and they're going to upset us and they're going to make noises in the back of the church. I don't want to pray for them. No, we are steadfast knowing that Christ died for all people, that his truth endures for all ages, and so we are steadfast in prayer and witness to the one truth. The right despair, again, again, we despair of ourselves in this holy work. We despair of our lack of steadfastness. We despair of our unwillingness to pray. We despair of our unwillingness to give witness to that hard truth, to that hard fact that all humanity is born dead in trespasses and sin. We despair of this and we depend on Christ. We lean not on our own understanding, but we submit to every word of God and let Him be our witness. And so we despair of our ability We despair of our inability to frame our words or our prayers and we let Christ be head of his church. We let Christ lead us and then we let Christ absolve us. Forgive us where we have failed in the grand, grand work of reconciling the state. Reconciling the church. The right fight. Apologetics. That's what we're doing here. We must be always prepared to give an account for the faith that is within us. We must be prepared in our churches as people of God. The Reformation was not built by the theologians. 
They certainly advised and they taught and they went out on a limb and they called the church to account, but it was the lay people that heard the word of God. It was the people in society, in the churches, in the pews, the grandmas and the grandfathers and the mums and the dads and the children who heard the gospel of Christ and they took it into their vocations and so it's for all of us to hear the word of God. It is for all of us to be prepared to give an account of the faith that is within us. And it is for all of us to say to the church, when you err from God's word, when you are out of line, when you are heading out of heterodoxy into heresy and finally apostasy, this is not Christ's church. This is not who I am. And you will not Label me outside of Christ's church by your unwillingness to submit to his word and I will not stand for it. This is all our responsibility together as we seek to reconcile the church. Not necessarily in the same way that Pastor Rosebro engages in it, (laughs) but in all our ways, in dependence on Christ, we look for opportunity Faithful preaching and teaching. I once said to my congregation, if I preach false doctrine, come and tell me uh, that you think it's false and if it is and I'm proven to be in error, let me repent. If I deliberately and continually do it, sack me. Sack me immediately. If I preach what is not in accord with sound doctrine, I should not be preaching. If I teach what makes your itching ears feel nice, sack me. If you feel good every time you come come to Bible study, if you've only ever heard things that make you feel comfortable and nice on the inside, sack me. Because the gospel is a stumbling block. It is an offense. You must hear the full counsel of God. We must, as Christ's church, Insist on faithful preaching and faithful teaching. Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if no one has been sent? And how, if no one preaches and how will they preach if they have not been sent? We must insist that our sent ones teach only what is in accord with the pattern of sound doctrine. If they do not, we will not have a church. That's, that's it. That's, that's the present reality. It might call itself a church. It might say, oh, we believe in the triune God. Well, so do the demons. <laughs> we believe more fully than you. That doesn't make a Christian. A Christian holds fast God's word. The right despair then. This is key. Absolutely key. This is all that I do as a pastor. This is all that my office leads to. All of the teaching, all of the preaching, all of the pastoral care, the administration of the sacraments, baptism, everything I do, everything that the church should be doing and insisting its pastors do is this. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Hearing the word of Christ on the lips of a failed and frail man of a sack of bones and blood. There the word of Christ from 
His written word comes through. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go in peace. This is the right despair. I have sinned. I've done well. I spoke to three people about Christ this week. I've sinned. Forgive me. Sanctify that work. This is the right despair. Repentance and absolution in despair of ourselves so that Christ might be glorified amongst us. This is not limited. (laughs) It's not limited. Let that be the clause. It's not limited. We're not just addressing these false teachers that are obvious before us, but the insidious and growing cloud of self-interest, self-desire, and humanity's own rebuilding of its babble. Ever since God made man in his own image, man has been trying to recreate God in theirs. It happens in all the churches in all the world. It happens even in those churches that say on paper that they are confessional. Those who speak up are persecuted. Our Lord promises us that. We will be persecuted. He promises nothing else, in fact, on this earth. He promises us an eternal salvation, a place with Him in the heavenly realms where we are already seated and yet to be seen with our eyes in the eschaton. This is our promise, our hope, our life and our salvation founded in Christ on this earth though it will be difficult, it will be a struggle. But be assured, be assured that the one who suffered the shame of the cross, God in human flesh, came and paid the price for you. Do not fear those who can harm your body here in time. Fear your God in holy reverence and in awe, For he gave his son to be your purchase price. Suffer the ridicule. Suffer the persecution. And boldly confess, I believe in God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who alone has worked in me life and salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, so by carry death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.